We're good. Jack Post, how are you, mate? How you going, Brad? Good. We just had a little um little hiccup first ten minutes in, mm. and we had some sort of tech situation going on, which is above my pay grade. And what do, what do we do now? Just start again. I think we start again. Okay. I think we just roll. Just I've always kind of had the opinion of the pod where it's like for me. It's self-edit. So if the questions were bad, it's like technical <laughs> error, technical error. Yeah, exactly. You just blame it on the tech, right? But I feel like it's, for me, the, co- the conversations on the pod are just that, conversations in which I just think always the most natural conversation without an agenda is the best one. Yeah. I would find it awkward now if we tried to revisit the yeah. stuff that we talked about there. So that I guess that 10 minutes has just gone to the ether. Well, it would just feel theatrical. Yes, it would. You know, where we'd be like... It almost feel like you're just trying Where to we're playing parts replay different emotions and feelings. Yeah, but essentially, for I guess a bit of a recap, we were talking about our first introductions to each other, mm. and particularly around this conversation of, of parenthood. And this is now coming up to I think it's next week. Did you say Gordy's second birthday? Uh, next ne- month. This time next month. This yeah, he'll be, he'll be two. Yep. You told me over the phone when we first spoke that the first year of parenthood was particularly challenging for you what do you think made it challenging i wasn't prepared for some things about fatherhood now i always wanted to have kids growing Mm. up so it wasn't like he came along and i didn't want the responsibility of having a child but there were there were a couple of things that spooked me early on one of them was i i had this understanding from people who said in the past you know parents who had said in the past that as soon as your child comes out and you hold him for the first time that you feel this overwhelming sense of love for your kid and it's like nothing you've ever felt before you you have a sense of like wanting to protect them and a, a connection that you can't explain to somebody who doesn't have children so i was ready for this kid to come along and give me this amazing experience where i feel this incredible connection to him and it wasn't the first thing I felt. The first thing I felt was was fear looking at him. Um, and I didn't really get that straight away, that sense of deep love and connection. And I thought there was something wrong with me because I, I didn't feel what every other parent is feeling in this moment. And I think I felt a lot of shame around that, confusion around that. And I just didn't really understand why I wasn't clicking into this like automatic feeling that a parent's meant to feel and a father's meant to feel for their child. So over the next three, like over the first three months of him being in the world, I kind of had my first experience with like mental health problems where I, I really felt depressed i felt extreme anxiety about going back to work i um i just had a like i essentially had postnatal depression which i didn't even know that the father could get it's a common thing one in three mums new mums can get it but one in ten new dads will get postnatal depression and so i didn't know at the time i had it i'd never been depressed before so i didn't i wasn't really even though i knew i was sad a lot of the time I didn't know why and it was so it was just this really difficult thing where I'm trying to be there for Bianca my wife I'm trying to be there for my new son but also not understanding the feelings that I'm having and 
I'm trying to suppress that and it's it's something that you can't really suppress and then mm. eventually having to face it. Where do you think the fear come from? Because that's... It. By the way, if people... Now, because we've skipped 10 minutes yeah. of, like, <laughs> of like getting <laughs> to know you, this feels, like a chance this, to breathe. <laughs> this feels like Straight a real jump in the deep there. end. Straight in there. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's a... Well, I, there's a few thoughts that come to mind off mm. the back of that piece there. The first is that men aren't typically great at speaking about their emotions or their challenges mm. regardless of the situation. And so I think to even for me here that one in 10 men mm. experience postnatal depression is a shock mm. because I've never heard any man speak about it before no. outside of the bit of conversation we've had on the phone. And, you know, the thing that you said is like you felt this sense of fear. Where do you think that comes from? I saw myself in my son straight away. I saw my a resemblance of myself. I, 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 w I remember feeling shocked that like, He's a little version of me. And then I, I don't know, I guess this fear came from like, he's going to, I don't know, I guess there was like something deep in me that's like unresolved from my own childhood where I saw him and he looked like me and I got scared for the things that he will experience and go through and that I might not be able to give him the support and parenting that he needs which I hadn't thought about what, like during the whole pregnancy with Bianca, I felt like a super husband. Like I was making sure that I do everything I can. I was reading the books about parenting. I was making sure we get to all our appointments. I was going to all the doctor's appointments. Um, but I don't know, something hit me really strongly that I wasn't ready for the, the moment that he was born. And you know, in that first 24 hours where they're crying a lot, I was like, this is, I, I remember thinking the thought multiple times, like, this is a mistake. We've made a mistake. We weren't meant to do this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be a dad. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm so aware of people just coming right in the deep end of this, of this pod. Sorry, yeah. to, sorry no. to start right here. Man, I, I really appreciate mm. your vulnerability because... Because one thing, sorry, so just to go back on something we talked about before, but it got edited out, what, why I was drawn to your story so much when I heard you for the first time speak on Dylan Buckley's podcast was because you obviously had this family who's open with their emotions, open with, mm. with talking and supporting each other. You told this great story about your parents upon finding out about your diagnosis, that they had this really positive reaction to it um, and I think what m made me keen to reach out to you and chat to you was like, I, I didn't feel like I got that a lot as a child. I still had loving parents and I still do to today, but I didn't have a safe space where people talked to each other about what was difficult in their lives. I never talked about to my parents about what was difficult for me and we didn't have an open communication about our emotions. And so for a lot of my life, I didn't, really have even a, communi a, a conversation with myself about my emotions i just suppress them yeah you know it's, mm. it's very interesting right because what i shared is my perspective of the story mm. in the sense that as a young man from the moment that i was like that if i think about the first memory of my life like the first moment i can grab a hold of in my memory and think that's when i first remember experiencing life I was about four at the time 
And I remember at that point in my life, it wasn't super conscious to me that I had cystic fibrosis. Mm. I knew that I had this thing, but I had nothing to compare it with. I didn't have any friends that I particularly spoke in depth with Mm. about my health. I was close with my cousins. And as far as I was aware, they were extremely similar to me. The only difference being I took a few tablets and had to do um, this chest physio and nebulizers every day. Mm-hmm. And I got to do that in front of the wiggles so it wasn't too much of a strain. Yep. But the first thing I remember about my life is a moment and I can almost put to it extreme detail. I remember being four. I remember exactly what I was wearing. I was wearing my overalls, my navy blue overalls with a little shirt underneath. I remember having my corduroy blue navy cap on and I was pushing a fake lawnmower next to my dad in the yard. It was like a warm spring or summer morning, something of the kind. Dad's busting a sweat. I'm not busting a sweat, pushing a lawnmower that's about a couple of hundred grams in <laughs> weight. And I've decided to retire early from my efforts <laughs> to go in for lunch. And I remember walking in from our family home's backyard for lunch and mum had made me my favourite salmon and beetroot sandwich. I remember sitting up on our old dining table, pressed against the wall, in my favourite seat. Mum put the sandwich in front of me, cut into triangular quarters, mm-hmm. and gave me a kiss on the head. And I remember thinking, God, life is good. And and however that comes to mind and sense of, you know, words or feeling or thought emotion at the time is more just, I'm loved, I'm happy, and life is very good. But little did I know, that's just how I'm experiencing life. Yeah. Because if you speak to my parents in depth, they had this forged positivity off the back of my diagnosis. But ultimately, their feelings in which I'm not experiencing in the first two years of my life is they're ducks. They're mm. calm on the surface in the way that they present themselves yeah, they to me. Be. Yeah. But their legs are kicking for life mm. underwater. And, and I think in many regards, that's the experience of a lot of new parents. Yeah. And so the child doesn't particularly become conscious of what they're seeing or or maybe not hearing or feeling or what could be going on until they're much older. Like for me now, I look back and being a, a, what I'd like to think is a young man who has had some life experience and is starting to think about a family with so for myself, I really think about their experience. Yeah. But Gordy will never really think about what you experienced in the early stages until he's a man himself looking to do that. Yeah. And I can tell you like, being a parent, that is your is your worst fear that is something there's something wrong with them, and especially mm. like, I don't know how much your parents knew about cystic fibrosis when very little. Yeah, how how would you know so much about it? So you hear something is is threatening your child, and mm. I can't think of anything worse. And for what yeah, for what I went through in the last, you know, for the last six months, I've been really good. But that first eighteen months of Gordy's life, I was having a really tough time Mm. and i think i probably i see it now as somewhat of a gift because i did a lot of work i I still see a therapist and i i did a lot of work to make sure that what i feel is not going to be passed along to him i want him to feel Mm. exactly how you did as that kid who's sitting in front of his Yummy, yummy salmon and beetroot sandwiches. It sounds the so horrid, but it's good, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> the ones that every kid wants. Um, I, that's exactly how I want him to feel. Mm. I want him to feel like he ha- has this, because he does, I want him to f- know that he has a 
family who loves him and supports him and will be there for him and will love him no matter what happens or what choices he makes in life. So I would say that the thing, the muscle that tends to grow for parents in the first couple years is the empathy muscle because now you really, and the care muscle, because now it's like you really have to care about something that's bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And isn't it interesting that we often don't hold ourselves in high enough regard to really think about what we're missing personally, but the minute that someone else comes into the fold, be it a partner or a child, everything that becomes difficult or was difficult about our life or is unresolved tends to come to the surface because we care so much about them. Totally. It was, it was, for me, it's not like I never had issues. I was was just easily able to go about my day without Mm. connecting with them. I didn't, there was no reason for me to connect with any trauma or any discomfort in my feelings. I could get through my day with, without having to face it. Then this, this kid comes along and he forces you, whether you like it or not, to engage with those those parts of you, a younger version of yourself, uh, somebody who is who ha- his heart has opened up a bit more to empathy. And I think I think you're right. They he was the catalyst. It wasn't him that caused the pain for me, but he was the catalyst of going like, "Hey, you got this inside of you," and sort of shaking you to make sure that you're aware of it. Mm. Which I think, if anything, speaks to how selfless you are as a human. Because I look Mm. at, like, and obviously I only see the surface level stuff. But we sat down at coffee this morning. And the minute that I mentioned your son, Mm. you done that proud parent thing, which I love (laughs) because I'm so excited about that next step for us. That, you know, I want to see photos of the the kids. Yeah, Yeah. you got the photo out. (laughs) And he's got, you know, the rock and sunnies on. He's got a great crop of hair. Yeah. You know, and I think to me, it says that. You know, if, you, if you're encouraged enough by the birth of a mm. child, someone that you're going to love more and have this connection with, like it's a part of you and a part of your wife. And we spoke about how that changes and almost just even levels up the love that you have for your partner mm. when you've experienced that together. To me, that's like, that's an incredibly selfless thing to now go, life is bigger than me. And I want to do everything I can to be the best version of myself for that child. I just think that speaks to something special inside of you. And, and I think that like you'd encourage any parent to connect with how can they how can they be the best version of themselves so that their children experience that. Yeah, but it's yeah, it's I'm lucky that I had a lot of support around me because I was so confused when I was mm. when I was going through this stage of like the postnatal depression and and having these kind of s- sessions of like like I was crying uncontrollably on the on the bedroom floor and like I didn't know where it was coming from I was just like this is not me I'm not, I don't know what this is if I didn't have the support of people like Bianca my mum was actually really helpful as well and then Christian O'Connell who I do the radio show with at Gold in Melbourne um has had his you know he's battled his own demons in the past he wrote a book a great book about it his his autobiography if I didn't have people like that around me who were supporting me and helping me through it, I don't know where where I'd be because I could easily see in those moments where you really feel like you're at the depths of it, where I understood why parents walk away from their children. I understood why people leave their marriages. I understood why people do turn to drugs or alcohol. Like You're just so desperate to not feel this pain anymore and you think that removing yourself from the family is the best thing for everybody else. I can, I totally understand 
those feelings. So I can see why I don't judge people for making those decisions because I understand how close and how easily they can be made. What do you think was the turning point in that roller coaster of feeling and emotion? You know, obviously it's a depression and, and mental health and mental illness is a it's not there's no end game, it's something you have to stay on top of, right? But like what for you changed in which you could then start to positively experience parenthood yeah De definitely starting to see a therapist has been one of the most valuable things i've ever done in my life and i was totally wrong about what i thought it was i thought when i was going through this and i was like all right i need to see somebody i thought it was like one or two sessions i'll go and see her and then i'll be <laughs> fixed i was like yep shouldn't be much more than that and she's still somebody i see to today two mm -hmm. years later almost um what's that, been can i ask yeah. sorry just to interject what's been particularly helpful about the therapist has it been the different perspective that she can share or it, just the load of letting it's something been, I'll, it's been able to access those emotions in you again it's because you just like maybe this isn't your experience because you had an open and loving family but and I, d I don't want to make it sound like my parents didn't love me. They did. But mm. we just, because we didn't talk about our emotions, um, it means that I had no, you know, I, I wasn't able to engage with my own feelings. Mm. So half of what therapy was is just understanding that, okay, you, you got no dialogue with how you feel and what your emotions are. Slowly over weeks and weeks, you, you, you get better like going to the gym i guess like build muscles for sure. for for being open emotionally and communicating so i learned so much about communication um i communicate better with bianca i communicate better with my friends now mm. i'm not afraid to have difficult conversations where a conversation like this previously i would have shied away from having because i don't want to see anybody's emotions i don't want to certainly don't want to let mine out i don't want to react to yours i don't want to be in a situation where we have to talk about it because it's comfortable to be on the outside of it and to not engage with it so i guess over a couple of years of therapy what you learn to do is feel safe even in mm. uncomfortable situations which is talking about your feelings have you watched boy swallows universe we on the episode one is we we just started it last week did you see the clip that i shared on my socials a week or so ago no i don't think so i won't spoil too much for yeah. you but there's an incredible scene and the little the little boy he's in, he's incredible he's yeah. he's i always get to say unbelievable but it's not unbelievable because i mm. experienced it he's so special and talented yeah. this kid he's going to go on to do amazing things but there's this one particular scene a couple laps in where he breaks down and he's so emotional mm. he's so disappointed at his stepdad lyle and he just drops to the floor and he's crying and he's, you know, it's, it's ugly crying. He's crying, his mouth's open, he's mm. sort of like dribbling and like it's just so visceral. And he says, like, I don't know why I'm crying. I can't control it. And he says, it's just a lot of hurt inside. Mm. And his stepdad, who's, you know, this dysfunctional character who is making a lot of mistakes in his life and making a lot of wrong decisions and is gone down a path that ultimately isn't fruitful he has this really incredibly aware moment where he just says you know don't ever apologize for crying 
you cry because you give a fuck. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have seen that. I actually, you think know. that might be episode the end of episode one. Okay, there. Yeah, and um, it's a just beautiful a beautiful moment. moment. Yeah, because for me, as long as I can remember, I've been a highly emotional cat. Mm. Like, like I'll, I'll have a cry if I need to have a cry, but when I'm up, I'm up. And when I'm crying, like I cry over silly things. Man, this morning, so <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, right? But Soph and I have been together. In fact, it doesn't sound ridiculous. I'm sure people can resonate mm. with this on some level. Soph and I have been together for like going on 15 months now, mm. right? Short period of time. We moved in together after two weeks of seeing each other. Right, okay. Really yeah. Two weeks <laughs> after our first date, we moved in together. It sounds wild, but it's worked. We've yep. lived together ever since. Yep. In our whole relationship, from week two onwards, we've spent as much as one night apart. So we're That's about amazing. to go the next four days yeah. without seeing each other. Mate, it killed me this mm. morning. I was I was like holding on to not shedding some tears at the airport because I'm like, I don't if I don't have to, I don't want to not spend time with yeah. my partner. I love her to death, right? And I think about that and sometimes I'm like, God, I'm emotional. I'm mm. like, God, I'm glad I am though because yeah. I know she loves me because I can connect with that. And that doesn't mean that if you can't connect with emotion, people don't think you care. But for me, like I wear my heart on my sleeve and so no one will ever second guess how I feel about anything. Mate, isn't it funny? Like I still hear the phrase, God, like God, I get emotional and think of that as a negative thing. Mm. And that's just from maybe like, maybe even a generational difference, the 10 years different we've got between us. But like that was how I was, I was brought up. Like, if you're overly emotional, it, it's a bad thing, and you got to try to, you got to try and bring that in and and make sure that you, you're not showing that. But why? Like, what what is wrong with you, you showing emotion in that? All that really shows is that you're to your partner that you love her and that you're gonna miss her. There's nothing sure. lost by you being emotional, in that moment, and that's what I'm trying to learn and that's what i want to pass on to my son it's like we're allowed to cry we're allowed to be emotional we're allowed to access those feelings what's interesting because my, i look at my old man and i've got a tattoo on my upper left arm of it's like for me it symbolizes my dad and it's mm-hmm. a statue of hercules mm-hmm. from rome and my dad was not only jacked and still is more jacked than me it actually hurts me um because i feel like i'll never catch up yeah but he's like he's a very stoic looking figure but for all of my life, I rarely ever see my dad cry. My dad, without fail, like even, mate, I remember being 16 and my mum's highly emotional. My mum's very similar to me in that sense. But as a young man, you often look to your dad as like this um, model of the kind of person that you're going to grow up to be. You see yourself in him, or at least I seen myself in my dad. And my dad was like, worked four jobs, slept two hours a night for a huge portion of his life played footy, lifted weights, tough bastard, you Mm. know? Like, I always used to think, God, I want to be tough like my old man, and I still do. And my dad was highly connected, like never highly connected to us kids, always told us he loved us, always gave us a kiss, always gave us a cuddle, but I never seen my dad cry, Mm. really until later in my life. And it's been actually really special for me. I feel like as I've opened up, in the last couple of years and done the pod and spoke on stage. And for me, if you get me talking about my family, mm-hmm. like it's just the waterworks mm. will come. If I'm talking about them for long enough, like the waterworks will come because of how much they mean to me and how much they've done for me. But it's really special for me now where I feel like I've been able to 
really tap in with my old man and we can be vulnerable with each other. And that's like a special feeling. And it mm. reminds me all the time that emotion is a part of life. And to express that and to feel that is a special thing. And to not feel that would be to live life not fully. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's my dad. Like, I could never get on that level of vulnerability with him. Because mm. he comes, I guess, like, he comes from a generation of of boys who were brought up and, like, have to protect that at all costs. Mm. Don't let yourself get vulnerable. Don't let anybody see the pieces of your feelings or heart. It's amazing that you, that you found that you can unlock something in your dad and have that relationship. And that's the relationship I want to have with my son. It's really special. It's, it reminds me of Jimmy Carr, the comedian. Mm. I remember him saying on a podcast once that speak to any comedian or someone who like really expresses their humor. And you'll often find that there's been someone in their life who struggled with their mental health or depression mm. or struggled to, be, to find happiness in their life, or maybe they struggled with it themselves. And I think you're an extremely funny character. How much mm. of your humor do you think was developed out of a way to cope or help other people around you cope? Mm. Yeah, probably a lot. Do you, do you mm. always remember being, like, were you, were you the class clown at school? No, nah, I actually wasn't. I always re- was it, w- always have been interested in comedy. And mm. so far back that I remember discovering Mad Magazine, which is like the... Do you, do you know Mad Magazine? I it's know just, of it. I've heard yeah, it's like comic it. strips and that sort of thing. And, like, I would pour over them, like, figuring out at a young age what the jokes were and trying to understand them. But, no, I was never... I was so shy as a kid, so I was never outwardly confident enough to be a class clown or a joker or anything like that because I was, I was really shy as a kid. But I always loved comedy. But... Yeah, I bet there's, I haven't really pulled it apart, maybe something for therapy this week, but <laughs> I bet there's a lot in there. It's like, how much do you mask not being able to show your emotions with, all right, I'll channel my energy into something else then. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, ultimately, it's become an incredible career yeah, for so you. So, so yeah, you've got to be thankful <laughs> for, <laughs> for some of the you things You take the positives where you can yeah. take them from, right? Talk to me about the career because, mate, it's pretty special to look at what you've done. Like I I have for the last couple of years been an incredible fan and was introduced to your work through Hamish and Andy through mm. the pod. And, you know, I think like any, you know, the, the thing about Hamish and Andy and the setup that the three of you have is there's something special that almost feels like the kind of connection you'd have with a couple of your mates. Yeah. You know, like That's those so three guys together who yeah. can like take the piss out of each other and chip away at each other. And, you know, the Jack the Weasel, the Jack mm. the Tight Ass, which I know is not you. You <laughs> paid for my coffee this morning. But it's just like, you, you know, man. that that's the stuff that goes around in the group chat or with your mates where it's completely unreasonable. It makes yeah. no sense. But if you fight it, they'll hammer down harder. Yeah. No, and actually, I think you look for like, I find myself on the Hamish and Annie podcast and on Christian show as well. Like you actually want to lean into those character traits of your yourself because you know, it's going to make them laugh. You know, it's going to give them something funny to talk about in the same way. Like my friends, when they're telling a story about something they did wrong or like how they stuffed something up, like they lean into it because they know it's funny for the rest of the group to have a laugh at their expense. And that, that honestly is the best compliment I could hear about either the radio show or the podcast is that, 
it feels like you're just sitting around with your mates and and chatting and having fun it doesn't feel forced it doesn't feel labored it feels like we just rock up and turn the microphones on well it's interesting right because you've been able to do this at the highest of levels now i I hadn't truly experienced outside of i think the first time i ever heard you speak deeply and vulnerably was a clip on social media from your radio show with christian i'd experienced you through the lens of because obviously Mm. being from wollongong like you're not on air you know you're not a a station that we tune into Mm. and so it was interesting for me to to hear that side of your story but i think you've almost got this experience now where you're at like literally the top of like the number one podcast in the country is Hamish and Andy Mm. podcast and you're at the top of radio here in Melbourne and so I look at you like at the top of these two fields and I think well there's two kinds of people there's the people who like me have the utmost self-belief that they'll find a way to be great at whatever they put their energy and their effort into and there's the people who don't particularly have too much thought around what direction they want to go in but it just happens along the way little opportunities present and they take them or they might fall into something and it reveals to them this whole new big life and opportunity what one is it for you like did you see this career clearly no i did i definitely didn't i've been doing it a long time but i never thought i was particularly good at it and i was slow to learn it what was your trade in i did well i did when i was going through high school they offered this program where you know even as 15 year old you go into this um radio station here in melbourne called sin fm student youth network and me and my friend did it as a way of just like getting out of class on a friday afternoon you're allowed to go and do radio as a you know extracurricular activity but even then i didn't know much about radio like i didn't listen to a lot of radio growing up so some people in the industry now are like oh yeah i used to listen to these guys and these guys and I always wanted to do it and that was not it for me. I didn't dream of a life in radio. I didn't have idols in radio when I was a kid, but I kind of just did it for a long time. So I started when I was 15. I was doing it um, all through high school. Yeah. And when I say I wasn't good, I, I I wasn't good at it. I still feel a bit flimsy at it now. And... Then I studied film after high school, but I wasn't really enjoying it. So mm. I finished that course and I didn't want to work in, um, you know, they made it film courses in Australia, or at least the one I did. You kind of get to the end of it and they're like, now nah, there's not actually a lot of uh, <laughs> jobs in film. So you probably find yourself making corporate videos for Skoda. Yeah. So I didn't want to make corporate videos. So I went back to CineFM and, uh, and then, yeah, kind of just, worked my way up and I got mm. super lucky because the first proper paid job I had was in Melbourne at night where you just press the buttons make sure the shows go to air and I would start as Hamish and Andy fin- finished their radio show so I crossed over with them in the mm. studio every day and that's how I met those guys and, and kind of stuck my hand up and said I'll do you know I'll come and help you out for free can I sit in the meet- meetings and that sort of thing so I kind of got just really lucky that I crossed their path when I did and then they started involving me on air more but I still never really had an idea of like oh this is this is you know I want to do something behind a microphone but I loved making things I loved comedy so I kind of just kept going and then I was ready to leave Hamish and Andy and ready to leave radio for good and in that same month that I was 
packing up to leave and Hamish and Andy were stopping five day a week radio, I got a call from Christian O'Connell who was coming out from the UK to bring his radio show here in Melbourne and Andy had mentioned my name as someone who could help him on the show. And so then I got offered this like next dream gig if Hamish and Andy wasn't already a dream gig then it was this like accomplished guy who'd done 20 years of radio and in the UK bringing his show out here and that's how I ended up on Christian show so I feel very fortunate with opportunity coming at the right time but also that's not to say that I was just complacent I've worked hard at the moments where I needed to work hard and and I put my head down when I need to work so I think it's a definitely a combination of I I didn't just make it all happen for me combination of being very lucky but also being prepared and ready to go so this is new to me I didn't realize that you were ready to pack up yeah so and what I were you gonna do? do I didn't I don't know and I what I remember clearly not being worried in the slightest about it I'll just be like yeah I'll, I'll say goodbye to radio and the next thing will come along or I'll make the next thing happen don't know what that is yet but I was ready to do it that was the end of 20 i guess that was the end of 2017 and then by may podcasts are really just coming onto the scene then aren't they like yeah well hna had so the first job i did on hamish and andy was edit their podcast edit their radio show into a podcast so i actually had been doing pod like that and they were number one back even back then Mm -hmm. that was in 2010 or even earlier 20 2008 i started with those guys Mm. So I was, uh, like, I knew about podcasting a lot then, and I used to love Ricky Gervais's podcast oh, from his I XFM radio Gervais. show. Um, He's my favourite comedian. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I was definitely aware of podcasts, and like, yeah. I knew about it. Even, even had a podcast for three episodes. Like, God, two thousand and nine, maybe. Um, two thousand nine. Yeah, my first guest was Hamish. My second guest was Andy. <laughs> <laughs> then I didn't. Then You've I didn't literally really, had two of yeah. people's dream guests in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Then know? I didn't really make many episodes after that. But um, yeah, to no, to answer your question, like I don't fit the mold of either of those. I definitely don't have that confidence that you said you had that like I can make magic out of anything. I've, I very much deal with imposter syndrome a lot, but. Also enough experience, I think, to go like, I will be all right. I'll be able to make something Mm. work. Yeah. It's a funny one because I think as you you enter the creative space, there's so much to love that Mm. it becomes, the process of it becomes highly addictive. Now, we were speaking about this before at coffee. Mm. You can't not love the process of putting a podcast together because you get to meet amazing people. Like Mm. I've, in the last... What's the date today? Next week, actually Monday next week, will be the four-year anniversary of my podcast. Ah, congratulations. Right, so it's like four years is a long time yeah. to be doing something like this. But then think of all, yeah, all the conversations you've had. All the conversations. Mm. And the crazy thing is, like 95% of those conversations would not have happened had it not been for the vehicle of the podcast. Yeah. So it's not even podcasting in particular that I'm like highly attached to. Mm. Podcasting is just the most efficient and enjoyable way to connect with those people and have incredible conversations. Mm. And there's something special about this creative space that the more you do that, the more inspired you are to continue being creative Mm. and testing different realms. 
And I wonder for you, like, how much is there like a treasure chest at home of creative ideas or a journal or a diary where... Yeah, mate, I always have to be doing something else besides the podcast mm. and the radio show. I just find I've, I've got very much a um, short attention span with it. So I'll do something for a, a long bit. Like I wrote a stand-up show and performed at the Melbourne Comedy Festival one year. And then cool. by the next year, I was like, ah, I've done that already and started a band with my friend. I did a podcast where I was making music. Now, over the last year, I've done a bunch of like sketches and turned my Instagram into like sketches, mm, sketch but I comedy. kind of stopped doing that. So I just, I, I like the novelty of new. And right now, <laughs> right now, literally this weekend, I was talking to Bianca, my wife, about like, I'm a, obsessed with golf at the moment. I picked it up in October last year. I was like, I think I want to do a golf YouTube channel. She's like, you've got, you got, you just started. <laughs> I was like, I know, but I just think about golf all the time and I want to make content out of it, but I don't want to flood my socials with it because... I remember being a non-golfer and how mm. boring I found it. Anytime Andy Lee talked about golf, I was like, this is so boring and you're just disconnecting with a whole lot mm. of people. So I'm aware to not put too much golf stuff out, but at the same time, I've got this hunger to make golf content because I'm playing golf all the time and it's all I think about. What would it be? Would it be conversations on the golf course? Yeah, or would it be something it'd be like different? this podcast, except right now we're just playing golf and playing that's golf. it. God, that'd be a fucking yeah, long yeah. podcast if you had me on. <laughs> Golf's a long game. We got four hours out That's there. All, no, it's a very long game when I'm playing. I still remember once. So I've, it's always a long time in between drinks for me to go play a game of golf. Mm. And we were talking about it before. My former career is the real estate space. It's yep. actually going to be my current career by the time this comes out because I'm stepping back into the world yep. alongside the pod and my speaking stuff. And I'm, I'm excited about it this time. I feel like it's been a lot of growth for me the last couple of years especially the last year as a human that i know my reasons for being back in that world now mm -hmm. but i digress the funny thing about real estate is a lot of people in real estate play golf and so my one connection with golf every year is the company i used to be at would have like a golf day yep. where you basically play like a 14 ambrose yeah and you basically if you were lucky enough you got to assemble your own team and so i remember this this one year, it was the last year that I was at that company, they said to me, you know, you're a lead agent, you're doing well, why don't you assemble your own team for the golf day this year? Yep. And everyone in that company really loves their golf. And I was like, oh, this is great. I get to assemble like my A team or like my Avengers yep, of, of golf, golf <laughs> to go head to head. And all we really need, we need three people who bring vibes. Yeah one person who can play golf because if they're good enough they'll carry the team like and, yeah. and i guess for anyone who doesn't know what ambrose is you play off the best shot yeah that's right so it yeah you know, best ball every time you hit you it. only need yeah. one andy lee yeah. right and so oh, i'm like sweet who am i going to get so i get one of my mates who's a builder get one of my mates who's in finance oh so they don't even have to be in the real estate space no okay. they've just got to be like clients or yeah. people that we like kind of um i guess connections mm -hmm. right and so my mate who's in finance couldn't play golf to save his life. He's more interested in what he's going to wear to golf. Um, my mate who's a builder, he's like, oh, I can't even remember if I've played a game of golf in mm. my life, but it'll be fun. And then they said to me, oh, you need one more. And um, one of the law firms that we used to use quite a bit, it's run by two guys who are both named Nathan mm. and one of them, exceptional golfer. <laughs> and they said, Nath's available. Yeah. And I was just like, 
Oh, you bloody beauty. We <laughs> need Nathan. Nathan. Wrong Nathan. <laughs> so we ended up, I think we come last out of about 16 teams. I snapped a club in half trying to chip from under a tree. No. It was a disaster. Like it was one of those, like it looked like, if you look from the outside, you think that all of us had had 20 schooners. I don't even drink. Yeah. But it was just an absolute disaster of a day, but so much fun. And that for me is like every time I play golf, it's hey, can a disaster, I ask you about not fun. drinking? Is that because of the cystic fibrosis? Yeah, so I've got liver disease. I've had mm. liver disease from the age of nine. And it's particularly... So CF is really weird in the sense that if someone told you they had... Um, if someone said to you, okay, I've got diabetes. Mm. There's like one... There's diabetes type one or diabetes type two. And you're only really born with diabetes type one. Type two is sort of formed later in yep. life. But with CF, there's what they call different genetic mutations. So... Both my mum and dad are carriers of the cystic fibrosis gene, in particular the Delta F five oh eight mutation of the gene. I hate that which one. gets yes, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that one, that old one. And so there's different mutations of the gene. You can have like mixed mutations, but they both have the double delta, which is um the most common. And does that mean mutation. like grandparents or other family members in your family tree had it at one stage or they can just all carry it without um you can carry affected. it without being affected and so my sister's a carrier of the cf gene mm-hmm. um but doesn't have cf and so her and her partner who've been together for a long time i know they're not as um clucky as Soph and i but when they eventually want to have kids they didn't move in together after two weeks no <laughs> they didn't but it, it felt almost like that because it was sprung on me last minute you yeah. know the protective older brother <laughs> that thank God he's a good bloke because yeah. he's bigger than me. So do they have to, what, what do they have to do to try to make sure they don't pass it on? Or So you can get tested um, to see if you're a carrier of the gene. Um, it's just a blood test. And so Soph particularly doesn't have to worry about this because as I was explaining to you this morning, because as a male with CF, I don't have a vast deference. Mm. We can't have kids naturally, which means we have to do IVF. Now, when you do IVF, they test all the embryos now. Mm. And so we'll be able to determine whether the embryo has CF or not. So yep. we'll know before um, we fall pregnant. And is it likely or? Um, so it's a one in one in 2,500 people, one in 2,500 newborn babies mm-hmm. are carriers of this, um, have cystic fibrosis. Mm. So about 4,000 Australians. One in 25 people are carriers of the gene where two partners who have a child are carriers of the CF gene. Mm-hmm. So 4% chance you're a carrier where two people are in that 4%. Then I think it's one in every 250 babies is born with cystic fibrosis. So the chances are quite slim mm-hmm. once you wear it down, but I'm one of the lucky 4,000 yeah. in, in Oz. Yeah. And I genuinely believe that. Like yeah. it's, while CF is this scary thing on the surface, and whilst it's provided me with my fair share of challenges, I see it personally. And I know that, mate, I'm, I'm very blessed that my connection now with the cause and with the CF community is I've been able to do a lot of work in the CF community. I just actually created a podcast series or hosted and edited a series for CF Community Care based down here in Victoria, where I spoke to a lot of other people in their 20s with CF. And I know that all of them spoke of, you know, particularly challenging circumstances and actually, one of my guests in that, who I know you know, Mr. Blake Pavey. Yes. Um, Blake and I have both very similar mindsets to our CF. We're yeah. very positive about it. 
he likes to take the absolute piss out of it in his comedy, which I love. I find it hilarious. I didn't realise until Blake... I didn't know much about cystic fibrosis, mm. but I didn't realise until Blake was talking about it that it's not safe for people with CF to meet other people with Correct. CF. I'd love to sit down face-to-face like this with Blake, but yeah. we could get incredibly sick off each other purely because you've got a high risk of cross-infection. So mm. there's like infections that would be damaging or highly contagious to me that you wouldn't catch off me. Yes, right. And I particularly wouldn't... I could potentially catch them off you, um, but me and Blake, like, you would never want to risk giving each other something that we didn't already have in our system. So does that make it hard? I mean, it's such an un- uncommon thing for a community to not be able to see each other. Correct. It's, it's really unique, but I see it in two ways. Part of the reason I'm so positive about my CF is because I never had a connection to the community before. Mm. To be honest with you, Jack, like when I was born, there were no positive examples of people who were excelling with CF. So my parents made a conscious decision very early that I wasn't going to engage in the groups because there there were groups that get together. And whilst it's not safe for people to get together, a lot of people still do because maybe they mentally need it more than Than they're scared of the physical risk. Um, But I had a great group of mates who, you know, I never felt less than. In fact, I was... I always tell them I'm more athletically gifted than any of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've got no reason to feel less than any (laughs) of them. But they were all incredible mates. Make sure you bring your tablets so we can Mm. eat tonight. Make sure they're just great human beings who like, I never felt any different. And so in not connecting with that community early on, I never heard any of the negativity. So my experience was my experience alone and the way that we decided to look at it, which was incredibly positive. Mm. And so it allowed me to develop and foster incredible self-belief and this great perspective that this is a blessing because it's made me the person i am it's made me incredibly intact with my health and i think about my health as a priority yeah it's connected me with my family because we appreciate the fragility of life and and want to be as close as we possibly can and it's made me look at everything in life as just like man, if i get the opportunity to do that sink my teeth into it and it wasn't until i left my job in 2020 that really, even though probably people who worked with me that didn't know I had CF, because mm. I don't present as someone who has CF. Like I've never struggled to put on weight. You know, I've always been quite athletic and enjoyed my training and physical activity. There's times in real estate where I've enjoyed a bicky and a latte more than I've enjoyed physical activity. So mm-hmm. I, you know, didn't exactly look like I was training. Yeah. But I found that for me, until I was like, had a firm enough grip of how I'm going to deal with this. I didn't connect with the CF community until then, which allowed me to enter in a really healthy way. And so what does connection look like now? Well, connection started the fir- the fourth episode of the, f- the podcast, you know, as every early podcaster does, realized I didn't have anyone to do an episode with that week and just thought, maybe I'll share my story. And mate, I remember sitting at home in front of the mic by myself, crying my eyes out time and time again, because mm. I just didn't, I'd never spoken about the f- connection with my family and what that meant to me. So what felt like so publicly, even though mm. it was just me and my yeah. microphone, I knew that people were going to hear this. Mm. I remember stuttering. I remember like it's awful to listen back to because it felt so disjointed. But for the first time in my life, I'd like publicly shared my story in a way that people who didn't know me and hadn't spent a lot of time with me were now hearing this and understanding it. 
I think it's like it opened people's eyes, but then it, like anything does, this, the more you start to talk about something, I'm sure when you started talking about postnatal depression, you start to get all these men who come out of the yeah. woodworks and like, oh, mate, I've experienced yeah, that. It's, incre- it's incredible. Yeah. And it's special when you feel like you can connect with a community yeah. like that. And for me, that started to happen. And then in July 2020, I started suffering bleeds in the lungs consistently. And like over the course of three days, I was in ER every night. And I just started trying to run and get my health and fitness back after I'd been quite complacent for a few years. And I just decided in ER at 3 a.m. next to my old man in Wollongong, I just said, you know, what? I'm going to run a marathon at the end of the year, prove that nothing's impossible for people with CF and document the journey. And we set up a charity event. We raised 56 grand that year. And like it put me in front of a lot of media and just all of a sudden the CF community started to connect with me and my story. And it's been special for me, mate, because just even like last week I had this this mum reach out to me who has three children um, but her youngest has CF mm-hmm. and little legend and she just reached out and you know he was concerned he was going in the hospital he'd been experiencing you know a little bout of like not being well and had to go in and and spend two weeks and he was going to be experiencing some new things in there like his first ever pick line which instead of a cannula is just like a central line that goes into a vein in your bicep and directly up into the top of the heart right pump drugs around your body quicker it's a more efficient way of getting iv drugs in and he's just scared about some of these things as i was at that age you know experiencing them for the first time in fact i was older than him when i experienced a lot of this and she sent me this message just asking if i could offer any advice and so i just thought i'll send a video back so i sent like a minute and a half video of a little message Mm. to her son and just to say like mate if you ever need me just reach out Mm. and we can have a chat while you're in hospital if you're concerned and mate i got this video back from her with like a video of him and mate brought me to tears straight away because it was just just the sweetest kid and it was just so special for me that i sat down i showed soph and i was like oh isn't this like for everything i've done the last couple years like this is the winning thing like i get to affect kids Mm. who are now going through what i've experienced and maybe just maybe like i can be a little bit of light and some of this darkness that they experience it in a more positive way that they can you know through all the hardship take the lessons from it and allow it to you know to develop a sense of resilience and strength and perspective for what's to come and if i can do that that's a very special opportunity and so that's been for me the joy the last couple years and don't get me wrong sometimes i can't connect with it all the time because there is a lot of negativity and that's just not how I function as a human. Mm. Like I like to be really optimistic. And what what is the negativity? So what? one of the one of the heartbreaking things for me is I've done this series, um, which was called CF Strong, where I essentially wasn't um, behind the creative of it. I was just the face, the host, and you know put the podcast together. And I sat down with six guests who were all in their twenties. Blake was one of them, mm. and Blake was a little bit different to the other guests. Um, a little bit more similar to me in his mindset but all these guests just wonderful human beings and like I really connected and got on with all of them but the really heartbreaking thing for me was we released 10 episodes right so I asked every one of them the same 10 questions they were just short sharp episodes sort of 10 to 20 minutes where they'd give me sort of a minute or two answer you know when I asked them about like any fears for their future with CF um, I was really 
really heartbroken to hear that you know at least four to five of them all felt like their life was going to be really short and and we know it's well publicized that you know when we were born you know i was i was born in 96 you know it's kind of expected that you wouldn't make it out of your teen years you would if you were lucky but likely not and because i've got quite a severe mutation of the cf which comes with a liver disease and comes with diabetes and and all of that like it's even a little bit more challenging the prognosis and and the reason that it's not been that experience is because the technology and science has improved so much or is it correct correct like we've got incredible medication now and particularly in the last couple of years uh a tablet or three tablets you take every day called Tricaptor and it's what they call a CF modulator and there is still a portion of the CF community who can't use this drug because it's not subsidized for children under the age of six yet um, or their genetic mutation it doesn't positively affect it but around 60 to 70 percent of us can utilize it and some people have side effects with which they have to stop taking it for me it's been very fruitful mm-hmm. for me in the space of three days on this medication all the green thick mucus that I used to cough up every day is gone and I haven't had a bleed in the lungs since. So it's like remarkable what this has done for me and for a lot of people. And because of that, I was always of the mindset that I was going to live to 100. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a pact with Sophie that I'm going to be around to 100, right? And I've always been very positive about the future that I was going to have. And I knew that not everyone was that way, but I thought that with things like this drug, people would start to be more positive about the future Mm -hmm. now it's well documented that life expectancy for someone with cf is around 41 Mm -hmm. but with the innovation of these drugs you know we think it can add at least a decade to people's lives if not more you know we're only getting more advanced in the research and development of these special drugs that can really change things but it's really heartbroken and just like gutted at the end of the series that like a lot of these guests spoke about how they, they really don't know how they feel about their life ending quite short. Mm. And for me, I was like, oh, you know, like it's, that's not something, whilst it doesn't particularly affect me, it's not something I want to, want to spend a lot of time on. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really positive and part of my obligation to myself and my family is to be really positive about my life because it affects all of us. But also, I still want to make sure I'm connected enough with that community that I can make a change. Mm. So, do you re- how how many instances throughout your life do you feel? Because I think it's an ama- amazingly brave and and so strong of you to to have this positive mindset mm. with it. But l- what do you remember of yourself going like, I hate this. I hate this. This isn't fair. Why me? Or do you feel like your whole experience with it has been positive outlook? I don't want to sound righteous, mm. but I've never looked at it as, oh, I hate this. Mm. The So there's there's a few things that I note that have been particularly challenging. We call them challenges, right? People, A lot of the time people say, CF sufferer. I hate that word. I've never suffered because of this. Mm-hmm. It's been challenging or it's been difficult, but I've never once thought about, I wish I didn't have this because I'm aware of how much it's given me. And how much of a gift it's been in so many regards like my first real brush with like mortality was at 18 my first ever bleed in the lungs is like the scariest thing you ever experience because it's it's so visceral like when you're uncontrollably coughing up blood over the sink and you've been told that 
if this ever happens, like it could be a matter of life or death, how quickly you get to ER, like it terrifies you because at 18, the first 18 years of my life, Jack, I was so well mm. that they never thought CF was going to phase me. I remember my doctor saying, as long as you continue to do what you're doing, you'll live an incredibly healthy life with CF. And so when for the first time, um, it was pneumonia at the time, it was my lungs bleeding, but I thought it was my esophageal varices because of my liver. I just remember rushing to hospital and just thinking, fuck, I just hope I get to see. Mm. I was with my dad at the time and just thinking, I hope my dad doesn't see me die. I hope I get to see my mum and my sister again. And that's such a visceral thing to experience and it changes the way that you look at life at such a young age mm. where you know, there's an incredible Confucius quote. And I remember sharing it in this exact seat when I was with Dill here couple months back that every man lives two lives the second begins when he realizes he has just one mm. and for me that was i really grew up at that point because it was this acceptance of okay i'm not going to let cf defeat me but for the first time in my life it's landed a shot now it's game on yeah and now i'm in the ring with tyson mm. i can't go to sleep on this guy like he's going to keep coming and i guess if you had such a good experience in that first 18 years of your life, you're like, it's all under control. You're eventually going to get complacent because you have to, like... You do. And it's it's funny, mate, because mm. sort of every year from the age of 18 until 24, I would have, like, a bit of a health crisis. It was, like, almost year on year. Mm. I'd get hit with a new infection. I'd have another bleed in the lungs. I'd spend two weeks in hospital, three weeks in hospital, four weeks in hospital recovering from these little bouts and it never dimmed my positivity or my light but it just made me a little bit more aware of the fragility of life mm. each and every time and like there have been a few more incidents like that one at 18 where I had a really scary bleed and had to get an ambulance and worried about whether it was going to stop but ultimately for me like the, the probably the hardest thing for me to overcome was the relationship thing because whilst I had incredible relationships with family and friends I had this really limiting belief that didn't marry up with how I thought or felt about any other aspect of my life that I remember questioning you know, how do I get a partner to have the same belief in my mm. future that I do like how do I seriously sit down in front of someone and say disregard everything you read on Google mm. and believe what I tell you about this thing and how I'm going to fight it and I remember it was one of my closest mates. So, you know, you talk about guys like you, for you, like Hamish and Andy or Christian, as people that you spend a lot of your time with, two particularly close mates of mine who come on the podcast mm. every couple of weeks. And um, their names are Joey and, and Ty, or we call Ty Ferns. It feels weird to call him Ty. Mm. And Ferns and I often run together and Joey, Joey often joins us now. It was this one morning during COVID, Ferns and I had been for a 5K we had a dip and he just come up with this wild suggestion which was wild in the fact that it was new to me but we were we were used to having vulnerable conversations it's what our friendship had been built on is you know being vulnerable and open from an early sort of early moment that we first met each other and he just said why don't we sit down for coffee tomorrow and i'm going to write down two limiting beliefs that i see in you and you write down two limiting beliefs that you see in me and let's challenge each other to get more out of our lives. And I was game. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And, you know, I really sat down at home and thought about what can I do to bring some extra value to his life and 
he obviously did the same with me, but I think he had some loaded. Mm. And we sat down over a coffee and the first thing that he said was, it's wild to me that you can wear your CF on stage as a badge of honor and you can inspire people when you sit behind a mic and you tell these stories of the resilience and the positive belief and the perspective that you have because of it. But I can see how much it's holding you back in the idea of being able to embrace a romantic relationship and think about a future with someone. And it's literally like he, he could have put the paper down mm. and punched me in the face. It just felt like it, it rocked me, but in such a positive way where I was like, I've never seen it like that before. I've, I've never seen it as like, it's such a contrast to what I believe about my own future. Mm. So who am I to challenge whether someone else would ever believe that too? And it really made me think differently about it. And as someone who's so tight with his family, there's always this little bit of ache in my heart that I'd never been able to really, to really believe in the idea of a future relationship and a family with someone. I had this like weird belief that I knew I wanted to be a dad and I used to often talk about maybe I'll have to adopt a child and just be like a single dad mm. and like so I can have a sense of a family. And I went away um, the end of 2022, a um, couple months after Foons brought that up to me. I went to America, I went to LA and New York by myself and just like going around experiencing life. I remember sitting in New York one morning and just having a coffee and I had a great run through Central Park and I'd just been having all these great experiences overseas, but I couldn't help but feel like every time I was experiencing something nice, I could enjoy it by myself and I didn't feel lonely or alone, but I particularly felt this like yearning to experience it with someone yeah. else. And I remember sitting there one morning and saying, you know, I'm really going to make a commitment to myself and a promise to myself that the next opportunity I get where I meet someone who I know shares my values and morals for life. Because I've met people in the past, mm. but I never felt like I really connected on values or morals with someone. Never felt I connected on like a vision of a future that we wanted to have. If I truly experience what people say to be love, I'm going to embrace it and I'm not going to stop myself from enjoying it. And I got home from the US and three nights later, I've seen a picture of mm. Soph. Amazing. So it's like, for me, that was the hardest thing to overcome in my CF. That's the mm. one thing that, and so, you know, I heard a lot of these incredible humans I got to speak with on this podcast share that exact same limiting belief. And so I feel very privileged now. And it's part of the reason I talk about Soph a lot. Mm is because I think that in modern society, people don't believe in this notion of true love anymore. And and maybe I started to question it, but let me tell you, I've got it mm. at home. And so that's why, mate, I'm not ashamed of telling people how much I love my partner. And I'll speak about her until the cows come home because it's very special when you experience it. In fact, for me, it's it's amplified all of the little things in life that they now have more meaning. Like one of the things I love more than anything is when we flick the jug on to have a cup, a cup or a peppermint tea and you know, we get in the bed and we watch at the moment, we're watching Bosch mm. on Prime and we sit in bed and just that simple thing of like sitting in bed for an hour every night on the laptop, watching a show we love, enjoying a cuppa, mate, just not much comes close to it because it's like I just get to do it with her. I'm so happy for you, mate. And also, what a gift your friend gave you. I can't... Yeah. That's a pretty unique thing for guys in their early 20s to turn to another mate <laughs> and say, hey, let's write up some limiting beliefs about one another. That's pretty special, mate. And that's 
to be honest, the one thing I can't ever complain mm. about is I've never not had incredible people around me. Mm. In fact, it, it's one of the things that makes me incredibly rich in life is I just have this wealth within my connections where I just have such amazing mates, like incredible mates. And we're, we're all weirdly from such different backgrounds and different experiences, mm. which is so fruitful in the sense that we get to share and help each other. Like Foons and I, like our backgrounds and who we are as human beings, not so much now, but like if you look at the first, he's a couple of years older than me, first 24 years of both our lives. So wildly different. Yeah. But like, and even when we met, if someone had said to me like, this person who's experiencing this right now is going to become like your closest friend, I would have gone, really? Mm. But just like firecracker friendship. But doesn't it show you the power of vulnerability and how it's a bridge. we want to connect like that? It's a bridge. It's so powerful. Mm. Speaking of love, mm. I mm. have absolutely loved hearing about your love story. And I found it so special. In fact, I love it. I shame, without shame, mm. love a rom-com. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Your story with Bianca is the script of a rom-com. <laughs> it does actually have a bit of a rom-com feel to it. Share, share with me. We go back to New York in this story. Yes. So I was doing Hamish and Andy's Gap Year TV show. The first Gap Year they ever did was in New York and we spent six months over there. Completely ineffective way to make a TV show and by the end of gap year we were taking three weeks to make it um, but Channel 9 gave him all this money we moved over to New York and I, I probably set up there like alright I live in New York now for at least the, this half of the year one night they did this prank on me on the show where I had to sit outside the studio and guard a car and they kept crossing back to me and asking like you keeping the the car safe and i forget the technical details of how they did it but they made me think in my ear i could hear the show going on they played some fake audio down there to make it sound like the show had wrapped up when really the the show was still going on and what they did was hire two actors to come and steal the vehicle from me yeah and I I should have known they were actors. Like it was a guy with a skateboard under his arm with a cap backwards. Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, a fifty-year-old man's yeah. idea of what a hooligan might yeah. look like. But sure enough, like they start trying to steal the car, and I'm and and trying to like wrestle them off. And then during the like the wrestling, um, Hamish and Andy come back in my ear. They're like, Jack, Jack, stop, stop. It's a joke. Anyway, so they did this prank on, on me and then in the green room after that, I um, was like a mini minor celebrity of the, the night because I had this, this prank just pulled on, on me and I met Bianca in the green room. A friend of hers worked on the show because mm. we had like mo half Australian staff and then people that we hired from New York and she lived in New York and she'd come with her friend and he... He was her work friend, but I thought that was her boyfriend. So when I was talking to her, I wasn't like trying to hit her on her or anything because I thought she was with another guy. But then during the night, I that guy went home and Bianca was still there. I was like, hang on, hang on a second, that that's not the boyfriend. I'm on a winner here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, well, I mean, I then I hung off her all night, bugged her, like followed her around, 
tried to kiss her at one point and she pulled away. That sh- <laughs> that's, that's something I'm not proud of. But by the end of the night, we spent enough time together that I saw her again the next day and the next day after that. And then it was like this whirlwind relationship where we spent two months, two more months I had in New York. We were spending every night together and we we knew that we were, the, the end was coming up, that we were going to separate. I was going back to Melbourne and she was going to stay in New York um, when October came. So we tried to celebrate all the holidays that you have in a year. So we did one day was Christmas, one day was Valentine's Day, one day was uh, Easter. And over a week, we, we celebrated each of these holidays. And then it was one of the saddest moments of my life is saying goodbye to her. I mm. still remember being... In, we were in Andy's apartment because after the show had finished rapping, Andy went to Canada with a friend on a golf trip and Bianca and I, he offered us the place. So we were living in his great apartment for a week and we're in the stairwell of the apartment. She had to go back to work. I was saying goodbye. We're bawling our eyes out. And then I really left as if I w- was never going to see her again. Mm. And then we were still talking to each other for the next week when I was back in Melbourne. And she'd saved up this money to do a European holiday the next year. And she's like, you know what? I think instead of going to Paris, I'll come to Melbourne. And I was like, yep, 100%. You can work here. You can live with me and my friends. We'll get you a job working on the show. And then she came and she after that, she never left again. How special is that? And that's 12 years. That's 13 years ago, is it? 13 years ago this December. I wonder how much, you know... In the early stages of love, for a lot of people, the relationship can be stifled by this fear of what happens if it doesn't work out. I wonder if in like your circumstance, yeah, totally. you're just in the moment, you, you kind of don't think it's going to work out because you're, you're, you're on polar you know, opposite yeah, sides had, of the We had this thing, it's like, yeah, you know what? I reckon that was really potent. We knew that this end date was coming up, so we didn't have to think about how's it going to work? You know, are you the right long-term partner for me? We could just go full honeymoon mode and go, all right, we know this is going to end. Let's enjoy every moment we have together until we're no longer together. I, I really think that that did a lot in the way of building a really honest, like foundational relationship between us where we didn't have to think long-term. That's what I often say to people because I often have, it's funny actually, when I come on Dill's podcast, I shared some pretty gnarly health stories, mm. but the one thing I got the most messages about was from dudes being like, mate, hearing you talk about your partner, like I knocked back overtime this morning so I could lie in bed with my missus for another two hours and give, just give her a cuddle and mm. like spend time with her. I was like, oh, that's really special that like people reacted to a love story in that way. And I often think... And I like that that's changing as well because going back to like that thing of like older generations and how they used to be, that this that old like fashioned like the husband who makes fun is he fun is he fun of his wife and says like yeah. oh the ball and chain and oh, yeah. she's not gonna <laughs> let me out this weekend that i see in our generation going away which is a great thing it's like why we love these people why do we pretend that they're a pain in the ass to us i love bianca so much she's my yeah partner in everything that we do she's my best friend yeah same why be shy about saying that i often think it's like oh and i i would never so the funny thing for me is all my mates are incredible Mm. they love they all love sov 
but I would never feel, I could never feel ashamed of like loving her or speaking mm. openly about it because it's just like, if you're not up with it, too bad, so sad. Mm. Like that's, that's what I care about. That's my priority. And yeah. I think the special thing about and it love, doesn't make you, does it make you weaker or does it to, nah, to I, love your partner? I don't know where that came from originally. I think it makes you stronger. It's such a, it's such a powerful purpose. Mm. And I love, you know, love actually yes. my favorite Christmas movie. Yep. Love it. And I love the opening scene of it where he mm. says, you know, if you think about it, where Hugh Grant, who's incredible, by the way, the king of mm. rom-coms, mm. where he says at the start of the show, I don't know the exact monologue, but it's something along the lines of, if you look at the world and need a sign that there's still plenty of good left in this world, it's like you go straight to Heathrow Airport and you'll see the mm. sadness, but you'll see all the love, mm. like people coming back, reuniting with their partner. And we are talking about that this morning and Soph's drive me to the airport yeah. at the crack of dawn. Like, to and that's what, that's what's still on one of my favourite things. So Bianca's family all still live in the US. Her sister's in LA. Her mum and dad are in Florida. So we have had over the last 12 years all these little instances of her being overseas and then I'm picking her up from the airport after two mm. or three weeks apart. Such a great reminder of the person that you love is to take those mini breaks from them. You'll mm. find it this the, over the next three days. That moment that you get back home and you yeah. see Sofa again for the first time, that, that will be a moment you remember for the rest of your life. You appreciate it even more than you thought yeah. you could in the first place. And it's um, a special I love. One of my favorite movies is Good Will Hunting. Mm-hmm. And there's that monologue that Robin Williams has about when he met his wife, like the moment yes, he remembered he yeah. was in love with her. And when he says, you know, I've got to go see about a girl. Yeah. And I'm like, man, that's, that's what it should be like. And I think if you often say to people, don't stop yourself from feeling that. And also don't be scared by what people tell you a relationship is supposed to look like or be like or how it's supposed to work. Because if you ask any relationship coach, they will mm. tell you that you're not supposed to move in after two weeks yeah. of seeing each other. And it's not that we had grand plans to move in together. It was just she come over to stay one night and I said, why leave? We're having so much yeah. fun. <laughs> and we've lived together ever since. Yeah. It's like in any book, it will tell you that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. It's been incredibly right for us. Yeah. So just don't question it. You know, it's a special thing. I love it, man. I love to see the smile on your face yeah. as well while you talk about it. That's a cracker. <laughs> Mate, is there anything that we can keep our eye out for in the months to come? Yeah, my golf, golf YouTube. <laughs> uh, not really. Like, I'm sure I get itchy feet all the time about creative stuff. So, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll jump into another project sooner or later. But Do you ever think about TV much these days? I know it's not, not really, really the currency... I d- only because I don't watch, like uh, we stream everything we watch. Like we don't watch free to air TV anymore. And I don't know. I didn't. I didn't love my only experience with TV is working on the gap year shows, and I didn't love working on TV as much as I did on radio. And podcasting is so immediate, and for someone with a short attention span, you know, you think of an idea and then you just go and do mm. it. The Whereas like is nice. TV is like think of an idea. It goes through a legal department, mm. then it goes through a props department. Then a month later, you're like filming the idea and you forget where the spark was for it originally. It's just a, I don't know, very slow version of creativity that I probably don't have the bandwidth for. Mm. Um, not saying I'll never do it, but that's why I like 
you know the, the only videos i really make are, are the shorts that i put on instagram and that mm. it's the same sort of thing quickly think about it film it on an iphone cut it up put it out yeah well we'll um <laughs> we'll make sure that everywhere people can find you and connect is linked in the yeah. show notes and then the hamish and andy podcast is back soon in the, at the start of march and you can always find the Christian O'Connell show on podcast as well. You're um you're done with the the government um mandated, mandated break, break ends yeah. at the end of Feb. How good, <laughs> how good. How do you, so how many episodes do you film a year for Hamish and Andy? We do forty eps a year. See, so hmm. you break from releasing as well, and just release for like the no, time like I haven't seen those guys since last year. Oh wow. Yeah, we we break, we break. I played golf with Hamish in December. Haven't seen Andy since probably the last pod, I, I don't think. Wow. Yeah. How good. Yeah. Oh, that'll be nice to get back in the studio. Yeah, yeah, no, can't wait. Can't wait to see him again. Too good. Well, thanks so much for your time, brother. I really appreciate it. Brad, thanks for having me. See you later.